Welcome to the teaching ministry of Grace Baptist Church in Santa Maria, California. Join our pastors as they share biblical principles of God's transforming grace so that you may learn God's word in order to live God's way. Good morning, Grace. Let's take our Bibles and turn to Philippians chapter 1. Today we're going to be looking at verses 9 through 11. While you're turning there, um, just kind of as an appetizer, uh, if you will, Proverbs 15.8 says that the prayer of the upright is his delight. In Hebrew, it's the prayer of the upright is his pleasure. And what Solomon is saying in this proverb is that the prayers of God's children bring God pleasure. And it's such an amazing thing to think about that when you pray, it brings God delight and it brings him pleasure. And we're going to be looking today at a prayer that Paul is praying for the Philippian church. And as he prayed this for the Philippian church, and as we begin to pray this church, it brings God pleasure and it brings him delight. I mean, what a staggering thought that the God of the universe takes pleasure and delight when you, sitting on your couch with your Bible open and your cup of coffee, begin to pray to him. He takes pleasure in that. It's fascinating. It should spark a desire to pray in us. Philippians chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. Hear the words of the wonderful God that we serve. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the wonderful cross. We have been singing about it. We have been relishing in it. We have been delighting in it. And even now, as we pray, you are delighting in our prayers. And we know that happens because it exalts you as the only sovereign God who can answer prayers and change human hearts And so, Father, we ask you now to come and change our hearts through your word. I pray that as we open the scriptures, that the gospel would begin to go deep into our hearts and begin to change us from the inside out, that we would be the people of God for your glory. Help us by your spirit, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. We saw last week that the gospel of God's transforming grace had united Paul and the Philippians in gospel fellowship. There was this mutual joy. There was this mutual affection that they had for one another. Paul had planted this church some 10 years prior to the writing of this letter, and he truly and deeply cared for these people. They were united in the gospel, as we saw last week. And we saw that Paul said he was praying For the Philippians, both joyfully and thankfully and comprehensively. But what was he praying for them? Wouldn't you like to be next to Paul as he was praying? Well, he spells it out for us in verses 9 through 11. He tells the Philippians, this is what I'm praying for you. And there's a little mini lesson we can learn there just at the outset of this message is, do we tell people what we're praying for them? Or do we just say, hey, I'm praying for you. 
have a couple of pastor friends that we will tweet and email and text one another on Sunday morning. Hey, I'm praying this for you. And it's so encouraging to hear exactly what someone is praying for me. So I encourage you, as you tell someone, I'm praying for you, tell them what you're praying. It's what Paul does here. He sets up a great model of one way to pray for one another. There are many great prayers that you can pray out of the Bible. This prayer will help you get out of that, that rut of spiritual dryness. Have you ever been in a place where you're like, I just don't know what to pray for myself or for anyone? This prayer will help you get over that hurdle. This prayer will help you get over uh, the hurdle and, and all the excuses that you make as to why we don't pray. This prayer that Paul prays can enlarge our faith to pray more. This prayer of Paul's that he's praying for the Philippians will actually change Grace Baptist Church if we begin to pray it for one another. But even more importantly, this prayer, if we pray it for one another, will bring God glory. That's what any church, that's what any disciple should be about. That should be our primary business, that we want to bring glory to God. And that's what we're going to see. And that's kind of where this whole prayer is headed by the time you get to verse 11. Here's our big idea for today. Growing in the gospel gives God glory. How do we grow in the gospel? We talked about that last week, about becoming gospel intoxicated, that the good news of Jesus Christ gets down into our heart and begins to change us. And it is good news, right? Good news changes you, doesn't it? Who hears good news and then, oh, they get a sad face. Nobody. When you get good news, it gets inside your heart and it comes out of you. And the gospel is good news that Jesus Christ died to bring sinners to God and to be with him and enjoy him forever and ever. That's the gospel. And when that message gets down into the nooks and crannies of your heart, it will begin to change you. You will become gospel saturated. You will become gospel intoxicated that you love Jesus and you think about him all day. And then evidence of that kind of gospel intoxicated, gospel saturated life is that you begin to live out verses 9 through 11 because of Christ living through you. And then you begin to pray this prayer for other people. Now, look at verse 9. Paul says this, It is my prayer that your love may abound more and more. Okay, This is staggering to me. I mean, on the surface, it doesn't seem that significant. Paul prays for the Philippians' love to increase, right? Big deal. You're, you're their pastor. You should do that. This is Apostolic Prayer 101. You pray that their love would increase. I mean, we expect you to do that, Paul. What's staggering here is that Paul includes no object in his prayer. He just simply prays that the Philippians' love would abound more and more. He doesn't pray that any love of anything in particular would abound. He just says, may your love abound more and more. It's as if Paul has left a blank here for you to fill in the blank, for the Philippians to fill in the blank with whatever. There's no object to the kind of love that should be increasing. He leaves it wide open. Now, he could have said, may your love of God increase. He could have said, may your love of neighbor increase. May your love of scripture increase. But he leaves it open-ended. Why? Why does Paul do that? Because Paul wants their love to increase in every single area of their lives. Love for God, 
Love for each other, love for their neighbors, love for the nations, love for their enemies, love for their spouses, love for their overbearing bosses, love for their mother-in-law, love for the guy in the church with the annoying personality. Paul wants their love to abound in every area of their life. Remember, there are two women fighting in this church. There's friction, there's division. We'll see that when we get to chapter 4. At the end of chapter 1, we'll see that they're undergoing persecution for the gospel. So you've got like problems inside the church, and you've got these problems outside the church. And what do they need more than anything? They need love to be abounding more and more. In fact, Paul uses a present tense verb here to signify ongoing, continual love. Their love should be constant. It should be a steady stream. It should not be limited by time. Love must characterize the Philippian church. And love must characterize grace. That's what we need to be about here. What what did Jesus say? If you don't believe Paul, what did Jesus say? By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have great music on Sunday morning. If you have a great church website if there's great preaching, if there's great buildings, if you give to missions, what did Jesus say? The world is going to know that you're my disciples by your love for one another. If we're going to make a difference in this world, from this city all the way to the nations, we must be a church whose love is going constantly. But in order for that love to happen, It implies fellowship. It implies spending time together. You can't love without the church body. I mentioned it last week. I said you can get better music. What I meant by that was that you can get music that's perfectly mixed and put on a CD and it's on the radio. The musicians are great here. Sometimes an instrument may be a little loud or not. That's what I meant. I love our music here. You can get a better quality, better mixed music on the radio. You can do that without the church. You can hear better preaching on the radio. Yeah, I said it. You can get better preaching on the radio. You can give to other ministries. You can serve in other places. But the one thing you can't do without a church body is love. And Paul says, I want your love to constantly, continuously be overflowing. He uses this word here, abound. He uses it 20 times in his letters. This is what he means by the word abound. It means it's the element of excess, this fullness that overflows the set bounds. See, Paul's desire was that the Philippians' love would never be limited by anything. It would always be increasing. It would always be growing. It would overflow the set boundaries. Let me give you a picture of that. A friend of mine growing up uh, grew up in a very poor family. His, his father left his mom and his siblings, there were four or five kids, and left them to themselves, and, and they were poor. And he told me one time he went up to, he asked the girl out on a date in junior high, took her to the movies, got to the ticket window to purchase the movie ticket, reached inside his wallet, and his mom had written an IOU note to him. They were very poor. 
so poor, she was struggling to get her, uh, she was an interior designer, to get her business back uh, going to provide for her family. And she went to her landlord and said, I can't pay rent for the next few months, but if you will let me, I can, I'll replace the carpet, we'll paint, I'll make this house look good. So you'll get a return on your investment if you do this. So the landlord agreed to do that, put in this new carpet, and they began over several months really making the house look nice. And it was cheaper for her than paying her rent. Now, here's the problem with the house. There was one bathroom. There were four women in the house. Four women, one bathroom. You know where this is going, don't you? One morning, one girl starts a bath in there, and her sister barges in and says, it's my turn to have the bathroom. And they get into this big fight, and there's this big drama, and they both storm out and go slam their rooms, and they huff and puff for an hour and a half. Meanwhile, the bathtub is still running, and the bathtub overflows the set boundaries and goes throughout the entire house and ruins the carpet and a lot of furniture and different things. That's what Paul means here when he says he wants the Philippians' love to be abounding and overflowing. He wants it to go over the set boundaries. It's an over and out of and into the house kind of love here. Out of the bathtub, creeping everywhere. That's what Paul wants for the Philippians. I want your love to overflow the set boundaries. You see, we set up boundaries in our life, don't we? We draw a line in the sand with our foot and we say, I'm not going to love people on the other side, don't we? There are people in our lives that we draw the line and say, I can't love them. We forget though, that there was once a line drawn in the sand between us and God because of our sin. And yet God's love went over the set boundaries by sending Jesus Christ to bring us to him when we were enemies, when we were under his wrath. We forget that, that God went over the set boundaries to us and yet we have the audacity and the arrogance and pride to draw a line in the sand and say, I can't love anyone over there. There are people in our lives, boundaries that we have set up and we've decided in our hearts and in our minds, I can't love them. And the Philippians were the same way too. And Paul said, I want your love to be overflowing the set boundaries. But so many of us stop at a certain point. It's like the old coffee commercial. Fill it to the rim with great tasting what? Brim. Some of you remember that commercial. I'm older than I look. (laughs) Fill it to the rim with great tasting brim, which was not great tasting, okay? Just so you know. Fill it to the rim with great tasting brim. What they were saying was fill it all the way up, right up to that boundary because it's the best coffee there is. Paul would say, no, let it overflow the set boundaries. The set boundary of that coffee cup is right at the very top. Paul is saying, let your love overflow out to those other people. Let it overflow the rims. Let me ask you today, where are the rims in your life? Where have you set up boundaries in your life where you have decided, I cannot cross this line. I cannot cross this boundary and love this person. Is it your spouse? Is it a coworker? Is it someone from another race? Identify that person right now. Some of you know exactly who I'm talking about in your life. Ask God, by your grace, will you let the gospel get down into the nooks and crannies of my heart and cause me to continuously overflow the set boundaries? Not a one-time act. Not a, okay, I'll love you today, but tomorrow I'm not. It's continuously let your love overflow the set boundaries. 
And when you do that, you show that you are growing in the gospel and growing in the gospel gives God glory big time. When you begin to love in an overflowing, continuous, over the rims, over the set boundaries kind of way, God gets you the glory. God gets the glory. Now, isn't that motivation to want to love others? Maybe you're wondering what kind of love this is. Is Paul talking about this mushy, gushy, romantic, comedy kind of love, that kind of feeling? Is he talking about cheap sentimentality? Verse 9 is going to show us the kind of love that Paul is talking about. Look at verse 9. It is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. The kind of love that Paul is talking about here is not this mushy, sentimental love. It's not the kind of love that our world talks about. It says love wins, you know, love conquers all. Paul's not talking about that. He's not talking about this Oprah Winfrey kind of love. You know Oprah's love, don't you? Oprah's love is this, look under your seats, presents for everybody. That's Oprah's kind of love. Paul's not talking about that kind of mushy, gushy sentimental, romantic feeling kind of love, the kind of love that Paul is praying for, the Philippians, is a knowledgeable and a discerning kind of love. He says, I want your love to abound more and more, and I want your knowledge to abound and discernment to abound in your life. He says knowledge here. Knowledge is not just mental facts and information. It's just not cramming information into your head. Knowledge has a moral element to it. There's a consciousness of sin. It's knowledge of God and Christ. Knowledge for Paul, the kind of knowledge that overflows the set boundaries, meant knowing God through his word. That's what Paul means. It's this experiential knowledge. It's that you know that you know that you know. Have you ever heard maybe somebody slandering one of your friends and you're like, you don't know them. No, you're wrong. You don't know them. I know them. Paul's saying, I want your knowledge of God to overflow. And some of us set up boundaries in our lives and say, I could never be a theologian. I could never understand the Bible. And we draw lines in the sand. And Paul's saying, I want your knowledge to overflow that line. Knowledge of God. And it comes through his word. Not knowledge so you can spout off all the memory verses, not knowledge so you can dominate some Bible trivia tournament in your small group. It's knowledge so that you can know God, that you know, that you know, that you know him. Paul adds a preposition on the front here in in Greek, and it comes to mean this, this full and comprehensive knowledge. Paul wants it to be wide and vast. He wants you to know everything there is to know about God. I want your love to overflow and I want your knowledge to overflow. I want you to to know all of God, all that he's revealed of himself in his word. I call it gospel knowledge. One commentator says this, it's the mature grasp of the meaning of the gospel that is the fruit of sound instruction and full experience. Truly and fully knowing God and all that he is for you in Christ Jesus. That's gospel knowledge. And it comes through fellowship with God through his word. And that's why it is of utmost importance that you're here Sunday morning, sitting under the preaching and teaching of God's word and Sunday night. 
hearing God's word so that you can know him, so that your knowledge can overflow. D.A. Carson said this of Paul's prayer. He says, Paul's assumption evidently is that you really cannot grow in your knowledge of God if you are full of bitterness or other self-centered sins. There is a moral element in knowing God. That's how knowledge is related to love. That's how knowledge is connected to love. You simply can't know God if you aren't a loving person. You simply can't know God if you aren't a loving person. You simply can't know God if you aren't a loving person. You simply can't know God if you aren't a loving person. Do you know him? Do you know the triune God? Father, Son, Spirit. This book reveals him. There is a feast laid before you and laid before me. Dig in. Dig in. Like someone who hasn't eaten for weeks and are served a meal. Dig in and know him. Your understanding, your knowledge of the gospel is found here in this book. You'll never get a grasp of the gospel unless you're in this book. When you begin to grow in the gospel, it gives God glory. Paul wants the Philippians love to be overflowing with knowledge. And then he adds another element here, which is discernment, which is really just practical, concrete judgment. It's just knowing what to do in any life situation. It's just, it's wisdom here. And Paul used the word, includes the word all here. He's saying, in every single situation in your life, I want you to know what to be able to do. Who wouldn't want that? What do I do in this situation, pastor? Don't you want this kind of insight? Something comes up in your life like, I don't know what to do. Paul's saying, you can have that kind of insight. You can have that kind of knowledge. Do you take this job? Do you go to this school? What do you do? You can have that kind of insight, that practical, concrete judgment, that discernment. But how do you get it? You're abounding in love. Your love is overflowing. You're abounding in knowledge. See, all of a sudden, loving God, loving others, and knowing God is very important to just the very basic day-to-day things that happen in our life. If you're wondering what you do in a situation, maybe you should back up a few steps and say, is my love overflowing to everyone in my life? Is my knowledge of God overflowing? Because when those two things are happening, then my discernment is going to begin overflowing, and I'll get practical Concrete judgment. I'll be able to make decisions. What's the purpose of all this? It isn't just to be able to make those decisions. That's good. Paul has more. Look at verse 10. See the phrase, so that. There's the purpose. So that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruits of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. The purpose of their love increasing, the purpose of their knowledge increasing, the purpose of their discernment and practical insight increasing was so that they would be able to distinguish the really important matters in their lives. Paul says, I want you to know what really matters. I want you to be able to approve of what is excellent. Approving has the idea of putting to the test and approving. It was used in Paul's days when they would test metals. It was used in Paul's day when they would test the student as they went through their schools and learning. Paul says, I want you to be able to sift through things that are happening in your life 
and recognize its worth and put your stamp of approval on it. It's like reaching into your pocket when you buy a new pair of jeans and you find a little piece of paper and what does it say? Inspected by number 14. And you always wonder, I wonder who number 14 was. That's what Paul's talking about. That you would have the ability to test what is best. You'd be able to approve it. You'd be able to look at your life and say, there are certain shows on TV that I can't watch because they don't lead me to godliness. There are certain radio programs. There are certain foods. There are certain things in my life that I know are going to keep the gospel from getting deeper and deeper into my heart. That's what Paul's talking about. He's saying, there are certain people I can hang out with. I'll put my stamp of approval on that guy because when I hang out with him... He makes me love Jesus and want to follow him. This show makes me want to love Jesus. Finding those things in in your life and putting your stamp of approval on it. You can test what is best, but the only way to be able to test what is best in your life is if you're overflowing with love and you're overflowing with knowledge and you're overflowing with discernment. But if you aren't loving God and others, If you aren't spending time with God through his word and through prayer, you can't expect to be able to discern what is best in your life. Your mind will be clogged. So if you've got a big decision to make, examine yourself. How much time are you spending in prayer and the word and fellowship with God? Are you being a loving person? Are you loving your wife and your kids and your neighbors? You can never test what is best unless you are increasing in love. Paul says, this is why I want it to happen. I want you to be able to discern those things in your life that lead to godliness. But he has more purpose. Look again, he says, that we may become pure and blameless. Pure here is the idea of being genuine, being real. See, when you grow in your knowledge of the gospel, you, begin, you can be real. You begin to realize that you can't earn God's favor by anything you do. You can't keep God's favor by anything you do, and you can't lose God's favor by anything you do. You're free then to admit your faults. The gospel frees you to admit your weaknesses and your failures. When you grow in the gospel, you can be real with people. When you grow in the gospel, you can say to your spouse at the end of the night, just like I did last night, you can say, honey, I blew it today. Will you forgive me? You can look at your spouse at the end of the night when the gospel gets down into the nooks and crannies of your heart and you realize that God has forgiven you through Christ. You can look at them and say, will you forgive me and I forgive you? That'll change a marriage. When you grow in the gospel, you can say to your kids, will you forgive daddy for being so harsh and mean and selfish? Daddy is a great sinner. I need Jesus just as much as you do. You can be real with your kids when you grow in the gospel. Your kids need to hear you say that. My kids know it. I say it all the time. They know and I say, son, come here. I just need you to know, will you forgive me? I know, I know, dad. You're a great sinner and Jesus is a great savior. (laughs) They've heard it a million times. And they seem like they really don't care and they're put off by it. But I know it matters. They know that I'm a sinner just like them. And I have the same struggles that they do. Your kids need to hear you say that. They need to hear you say, sorry, I was overbearing. Sorry, I got frustrated last night when you got up and asked for a drink of water after I put you to bed. 
And I yelled at you, get back on the bed. Like some of you do. I never do that, of course. I'm lying. I do that. We all do that. See, your kids need to hear you say that. See, our tendency as parents is just to always say no to them, isn't it? Dad, can I? Nope. Dad, can we? Nope. 4,000 times in one day. I think Dave Harvey said um, that we should have a really good reason why we don't say no. Because we're just so prone to do that. Just say no to them. Just step back and relax and just be real and say, okay, yeah, go do that. You want to go do that? Go do that. Don't play with knives, but you can go do that. But to be real with our kids when we drop the ball with them, when we sin. See, when you grow in the gospel, you can look fellow church members in the eyes and say, will you forgive me? You can do that. Listen, the leadership of this church, the elders, pastoral staff, the deacons, we're going to drop the ball. We're going to mess up. And we will come to you and say, look, we, that was a dumb decision. We shouldn't have done that. Hopefully you're understanding. You can say, we, we forgive you. And hopefully you can go to people and say, hey, I avoided you last week at church because I was mad at you. We forgive me. See, when you grow in the gospel and anyone asks you for forgiveness, you can look them in the eye and say, yes, I'll forgive you because God has forgiven me of so much. How can I withhold my love and affection and forgiveness from you? That's gospel growth that changes relationships and it gives God glory. Paul also wants them not to just be genuine and real. He wants them to be blameless, he says here. This refers to relational integrity. What he means here is that he says, I want you to live in such a way that you don't cause other people to stumble. It's pretty practical, isn't it? I want you to live in such a way that you don't cause other people to stumble. And what's the driving force behind this of being real, not causing others to stumble in a church body? He says it's the day of Jesus Christ. He says, I want you to live this way until Jesus returns because he's going to return. And he says in 2 Corinthians 5.10 that we're all going to stand before the Lord and give account of all the things done in the body, whether good or bad. Our eternity is not at stake. It's just an accounting what we did with our time and our talent and our treasures. How do we live together as a church body? Paul says, I want you to be real until that day. And I don't want you to cause anyone to stumble until that day because the day of Christ is coming. Let me ask you today, are you real? Do you walk through these doors real on Sunday morning? Or do you come in wearing masks? Listen, I know what it's like. I've got four kids and a spouse. I know what it's like. Sometimes you drive to church and on the way, chaos ensues, right? Anybody with me here? Your kids fight. I mean, sometime this past summer, two of my boys were fighting over a stick as they got in the van to go to church. And so for 15 minutes on the way to church in Texas, they fought over a stick because they're sinners. And my wife and I have fought on the way to church. I know none of you have ever done that. I know none of you have ever fought with your spouse on the way to church, yelled at your kids, sit down and get yourself buckled, leave your brother alone, scoot over, look out the window, don't touch each other. You pulled into the church parking lot, you got out and you said, good morning, praise the Lord, how you doing? (laughs) You've never done that. I have high expectations and belief in you. I know you've never done that. 
See, when the gospel gets down into the nooks and crannies of your heart, you can be real with people. You can be transparent. You can come through these doors and say, when somebody asks you, how are you doing? You say, you know what? I haven't had a good morning. Kids fought all the way to church. Fought with my spouse on the way. Will you just pray for me? So I can get my heart in a place so I can worship the Lord again. That should happen here often. We should be real and genuine. Okay, it doesn't mean that we just go and broadcast all our sins to everybody. We don't walk in and say, hey, I yelled at my wife last night and I was overbearing with my children and I took a pencil from work. Okay. Paul's not downplaying sin here because what he says next is he says he wants them to be filled with the fruits of righteousness. He wants the fruit of the Spirit to be evident in their life. And when they're real and when they're genuine, when they're transparent, when they're letting the gospel get into their heart, then the fruits of the Spirit, the fruits of righteousness will be evident in their life. Love and joy and peace, patience and kindness and goodness, faithfulness, gentleness and self-control. Galatians 5, the fruits of the Spirit is what Paul is praying for them. So he's saying, yes, admit your sins, but fight for holiness. That's what he wants for them. See, the gospel frees you to be real. You don't have it all together. I don't have it all together. Only Jesus is perfect. But the gospel, when you grow in it, you can be real. And the fruits of righteousness that come through Jesus will be evident in your life because you're focusing on what he has done and not what you do and not what you don't do or what your spouse does, or what your spouse doesn't do, or what your kids do, or what your kids don't do, when you're focused on Jesus Christ, the fruits of righteousness that come from him start to seep out into your life because your love is overflowing, and your knowledge, and your discernment, and then you're getting insight, and you're real, and you're transparent, and you're not causing others to stumble. Paul says, I want all of that to happen. All that he's prayed, and then he gives the reason why. Look at verse 11. To the glory and praise of God. Paul says, I want all of this to happen in your life because it results in praise and glory of God. It brings him pleasure. It brings him delight when we pray this for each other, when we pray this for ourselves and our family, when we begin to live this out as he lives through us, the gospel, when that happens, God gets delight and God gets pleasure and God gets glory. When we're growing in the gospel, God gets glory. Ephesians 3.10 says, it's through the church that God's wisdom goes on display in the heavenly realms. Think about that. Write that verse down and you just meditate on that verse this week. It's through the church. It's through Grace Baptist Church as we gather together at different times and places. It's through us that God is displaying his wisdom in uniting all of us together like mushed grapes. And it gives him glory, not only in the watching world here, but in the heavenly realms. See, that's why what we do on Sunday morning... It's very important because there are angelic beings in the spiritual realm and there are demonic beings in the spiritual realm. And Paul says in Ephesians 3.10, it's through what we do, mush together grapes, displays God's wisdom. And the spiritual world is looking on and saying, how do they all get along? They're all so different. Jew and Gentile, 
Cowboys fans and Raiders fans, Cardinals fans and Rangers fans. How do they all get together? How does their love overflow for each other? They're real. And they're scratching their head. Peter says the angels long to look into our salvation. Angels long to look into the gospel. They're like, what's going on? What happened at the cross and resurrection that transforms these people in such a way that they love one another? And then God's glory goes on display. When you grow in the gospel, God gets glory. When you love the unlovable, your spouse because they've left the wet towel on the floor for the thousandth time. When you love them, when you love your coworker who gets on your nerves, when you love your teenager, when you love your teenager, God gets glory. When you read your Bible and you grow in knowledge and discernment and insight, God gets glory. When you open this book up and read it, he gets glory. When you are real and transparent and you don't wear masks at church, God gets glory. When you don't cause others to stumble, God gets glory. Picking up the wet towel so that your spouse doesn't stumble gives God glory. And when you are filled with the fruit of the Spirit, God gets glory. And when these things are happening in your life, in my life, in a church body, we're growing in the gospel. And when you pray these kinds of prayers for this church and for our missionaries and the pastors and the elders and the deacons and everyone here, we show that we're growing in the gospel. And when we grow in the gospel, God gets glory. Let's pray. Father, thank you for oh, just the hope of the gospel. It's, it's too good to be true right now to me, God. It's too good to be true that you made your son who knew no sin to become sin for me. That in him I might become the righteousness of God. That I stand blameless right now, Father. That everyone here that has turned from their sins and trusted in you stands blameless in your eyes. It is too good to be true. I don't believe it, but I believe it, God. I pray that that message would get down into the nooks and crannies of everyone here and that we would become like mushed grapes and not clanging marbles and that we would display your glory, Father, and enjoy you in the depths of the gospel every single day. I pray that we would be forgiving and loving and kind so that you get glory. Would you do it now by your spirit, we ask in Jesus' name. Our hope is that today's message empowers you by God's grace to live God's way. For more information, visit us online at gracebath.net.